Welcome to episode 77B. Today, Dr. Helene Marshall will talk about a framework for supporting SLIFE. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. I'm recording this on September 1. 2021. Yesterday, the U.S. ended their air evacuation of people from Afghanistan. Many of the evacuated are children, and many of these children will be part of your class. I'm inserting this conversation with Dr. Marshall within our teacher collaboration series to support you in your work with your Afghan students who are coming from a rich oral and collectivist culture. I know next to nothing about supporting SLIFE. However, we can learn from experts who have worked with SLIFE before there was even a terminology for them. One of the foremost experts on this demographics is Dr. Helene Marshall. If you don't teach SLIFE, the principles of her framework align perfectly if you want to teach in a culturally sustaining and relevant way. I would say that I left this conversation a different teacher a different human. It is one of the most transformative conversations I've had on this podcast. I now see my practice in a new light from this conversation. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited to have Dr. Helene Marshall on the podcast. And we know you through your work in uh, SIFE education, you're one of the experts. Well, first of all, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Marshall. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Let's talk talking about first a story about you working with a SLIFE that uh, has really stayed with you to this day. Okay. So uh, if I think about all the students I've had over the years and one of those uh, moments where you know you're headed in the right direction, but this confirms it, was a student, I'll call Ty, who uh, came to me uh, after class. He had been rather disengaged and he was doing okay in my class, but uh, there was something about him that kept him from really engaging. And he asked for an appointment. Well, that's great, right? So he came to see me uh, after class and we, uh, we spoke. We had quite a conversation and talked for, I would say, nearly an hour. And I kept waiting for him to say something like, uh, can you help me with uh, the reading or the grammar? I mean, it was a, it was a language class. And uh, he never did, actually. And uh, then he got up and said, well, thank you. Thank you very much. This was great. Thank you for meeting with me. And I was a bit bewildered, but I thought, okay, he got what he needed, whatever that was. And uh, the next day, we come, we come to class. It's a different student. 
he was and he was engaged participating he was he was uh happy in class so i asked him to come over afterwards and i said ty i said you were very different today uh what what's going on he said well now i know you i can learn from you and that that really resonated with me because in my work I talk about the importance of interconnectedness yes. and that it's not just connecting students with each other, but connecting with the teacher. Right. And, you know, in our culture, it's more um, the teacher is the teacher and you don't talk a lot about yourself as a person, right. but for Slife, there's not these boundaries. And if you want to learn from someone, you learn from someone, you know, and he wanted to know me as a person. And once he did that, then the learning could kick in. Right. And that's what confirmed for me at least one element of the approach that I've designed, right. uh, which is the interconnectedness. It's, it's like a web. Everyone's interconnected. So I'll never forget, Ty. I learn just as much from my students or more than they learn from me. <laughs> I, I think I will always remember that. Um, now that I know you, I can learn from you. That really talks about that it really speaks to the need to develop relationships with kids, to have them trust us from day one. Right. And what's interesting is that when I work with teachers, I have to tell them that particular story because they all say to a, to a person, I have relationships. All language teachers, you know, when you work with uh, immigrants and refugees, you have to be more than just a teacher. You have to have relationships. But I explained to them, yes, but it's even more so with this population, with SLIFE. It's, it's, that, it's that extra piece that they have to add, which is to really, really relate on a personal level. And we aren't that used to that. Right. So, Why is that so important for SLIFE students, the relationship? Be because in their learning paradigm, when they learn in their own culture, in their own society, yes. they learn from people they know well. They don't go to a separate place to learn from a teacher. They learn from an elder in their village, or they, they learn from a sibling, or they, you know, they learn in a context of relationships. So they already have relationships with the people they're learning from. And that's what they expect, and that's what they need. This is already going to be a great podcast. Well, let's thank you for sharing that wonderful story. Uh, let's talk about uh, the book, The School I Deserve, ah. and your role in it. You were featured as an expert, <laughs> and you were there to talk to the judge about what works best for SLIFE. So what was your central message to the judge? Well, can you give us the context of the, of the lawsuit? Okay. First, I just want to show, this is the book, The School I Deserve. And I have a funny story to tell you about it. I was afraid to read it because everybody told me you're in this book. And, I'm, and I knew I had been interviewed. Uh, she actually came to my house and um, we sat on the porch and we talked and I, I gave her a lot of information and some things I said, you know how you do that. You say, this is off the record. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's okay. She's a journalist. I trust her totally. She's fantastic. Joe Napolitano. She wrote, I, I read it. I, I wanted to make sure before the podcast that I read it. <laughs> you motivated me. So 
I read it and she is fantastic. She's a great author. And there's so much more in this book than only the case. Um, but as far as my expertise, I found that it was right on target. I was exactly the person they needed. I'm not just saying that. I really was the person they needed. I had, I had analyzed the data more than the district had, and I knew the data. Um, I had looked at, I had entered everything into Excel. And in fact, I had Excel charts ready to go. And the lawyers said, you know what? People's eyes will glaze over. Don't give them the actual data. So I actually held back in the, in the hearing from the detail that I had. But if they always say you should have 150% ready to go and then only give 100%. So, so uh, that gave me confidence because I knew the data would back me up. So my message to the judge, now I'm finally to your, your question. <laughs> uh, so, so my message to the judge was that the school that these students had been sent to was 180 degrees away from where they should have been and where they would have succeeded and that they were set up for failure instead of success. And I was able to demonstrate that. And the two points that the attorneys needed to prove, I was able to help very much with the second one. The first one was the EEOA, the Educational Opportunity Act. Remember, we're about the law. So the law says equal opportunity. These students didn't have equal opportunity because the program at Phoenix and the program at McCaskey were completely different. And the program they were offered at Phoenix did not allow them to have sufficient exposure to English as a second language, not English, fine, they were exposed to English. But as you know, when you're learning English, you can't get exposed to I plus 10, you have to get exposed to I plus one. Well, there was very little I plus one. It was more throw them in and see if they swim. They did have an ESL teacher, they had a one period, but they didn't have a real program for newcomers. And the other school had a program for newcomers. Not only that, but their sisters and brothers were in it. The cutoff was age. So what's the magic about 17? My 16-year-old sister is over in the other school. I'm 17. I'm over here. So the idea was, and I talk about this a lot in my work, priorities. The school's priority, and I did tell this to the judge, and to the courtroom, you know, there's a difference of priority. The priority of the school was graduate, graduate, diploma. Your diploma is worth a lot in this world, but it's only worth a lot if you really learned the material and you speak the language. If all you have is a piece of paper, you will be found out immediately as an imposter. And these kids are not dumb. <laughs> they know that a meaningless piece of paper is just that. They wanted an education and they wanted to learn English and they could not do it in that school. So uh, what I had to show was that they did not get really equal opportunity, okay? Um, the other piece, which was not my purview, but I could see right away, was that because they were refugees, and this is where psychologists and all come in, um, they're refugees, they've been traumatized. You don't put them in a school where you pat them down every day, where you have special shirts for behavior, where most of the students were there as a second chance. Uh, 
this just brought back the worst memories. Uh, it, it was not a place they felt safe and, and happy. And when you're not safe and happy, you can't learn. And that part is, you know, the affected filter. Uh, I can't learn this way. And so I did speak a little bit about that. But the main area that I addressed was the language barriers right. and the fact that uh, the way they were being taught in their regular classrooms, uh, the teachers were not trained. They had a, a very minimal training to work with language learners. And remember, you've got a big class of kids and most of your students are English speakers and you have just a few who are not and they're newcomers. You can't really present to them appropriately. And so um, the judge understood what I was saying. I was, I tried to use metaphors. I, you know, one of the reasons they said they hired me was that I'm, I'm sorry, I'm too long on this first question, but second question, but, um, but um, what I tried to say was that um, you, when you, when you have a newcomer to the country, they need like to take off on a plane. Yes. One of the reasons they hired me is that I was able to explain things. A lot of academics speak. You may notice that I'm trying to talk in a more general manner here, although I did refer to some of Krashen's uh, work. But but what I'm trying to do is, is, is make it uh, accessible to everybody. And that's what I tried to do in the courtroom. I said, the plane's taking off. It needs a runway before it takes off. Okay. So, uh, so the runway is different when you're a, a newcomer yes. who comes, you know, with very little education, very little literacy, not to see it from a deficit view, but to see it from, and we'll talk about this later, um, oral transmission is a very valid way to learn, but it's not the way we expect people to learn. And so you have to get them acclimated to the fact that we're so cent centralized on our literacy and print. Uh, and it just takes longer, the runway's longer. And this, this other school um, had a perfect, wonderful program. I looked at their program and they were getting good results. And I was able to compare, as I said, I looked at the data and I could see that in the area, particularly, we have this thing uh, in the US called WIDA, which about 40 states uh, are members of, and Pennsylvania was one of them. And I looked at the WIDA data on the, uh, the access test, which they use, and you can go into different domains. And I looked into the domain of literacy and I compared, and that's where the big difference was, that, that the Phoenix School was not boosting their literacy, whereas the McCaskey was. I had that data, the school didn't even have it. <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, stop me. Somebody has to stop me and you're the only one here, so you better stop me. No, I, as an expert, <laughs> I, the, the podcast that I love the most are when the guests just flow from their expertise and you have 30 <laughs> years of expertise and you're, but it's not just expertise, it's that passion you have. I remember reading the book and at the end of the chapter, I like closed it, reached for my laptop and I was like, let me find you. Where are you? Let me have you on the podcast because we need to hear from your expertise on Slife. And that's why you have a book. You've, you've co-written a book, right? And it's called Meeting the Needs of Slife. And I was like, yes, we need to not just have you in the courtroom, but we need to have more teachers learn about your work. So let's move to the book though. In the, uh, there are several chapters and I'd love for you to talk about when you intake students, like you, there's a conversation for, versus interviews. It's all about relationships. Can you talk about that? So um, I, I will I will 
talk directly about that, but again, I want to contextualize this just a little bit, yes. is that what we do is well-intentioned right. and what we do makes sense to us. And I am not here to, to make people feel guilty or bad about what they do because what we do is, is fine in most cases, but it's very important to be ready to accept the fact that the very thing that we do with good intentions right. could actually have the opposite effect if someone is so very different in their worldview that they take it a different way. And it's very hard for you to step outside of your entire worldview and look at the world differently. And that's why I believe my work is an uphill battle because I'm trying to get people to get outside their worldview and look at another worldview and then see how they might need to make some accommodations and adjustments in order to make things work for these people who have a different worldview. And so that is the context for everything I'm going to say. All right, so now we start with the interview. First of all, <laughs> there's no such thing as an interview for SLIFE. What's an interview? Someone asks you a question. Your approach to a question, when you're being asked by someone you do not know, who is asking you probably through an interpreter, and probably is in a position of authority, is never, I would magicians ever say it, never, is rarely to give them an accurate response. Why is accuracy the goal? Now, what do you mean why is accuracy the goal? Tell the truth, nothing but the truth, the whole truth. No, what you do, and again, if I mentioned earlier, you have it uh, recorded, is a question of priorities, the priority of graduating with a diploma versus meeting language barriers and having equal opportunity. Okay, so this is again priorities, the same idea. The priority is to please the interviewer and not to draw attention to oneself. Yes. yes. And to get through the interview with the solution that they're going to put you in the school and put you in a good class and give you a good teacher. So what you say doesn't have to be accurate. It has to be effective and successful in meeting that goal. Well, the interviewer just assumes, and assumptions is a big part of my work, the, the interviewer assumes that what they're getting is accurate because they're in a position of authority and they have an interpreter and the interpreter's giving the question and they're writing down. You told me not to use writing. I'm sorry, I'm doing it. Oh, yeah. Okay. It, writing the answer. Oh, how many years of schooling? What was your birthday? You know, I have a story, the Hmong, the Hmong, they're all born January 1st. Get it? Um, you have to look at someone else's point of view. Right. And so I say, don't do an interview because it's not, it's not a genre. And in fact, I use a different term for genre. I call it a formal schema. A formal schema is a way of organizing information 
that is a template. And if you don't know that formal schema, you're not sure how to interact with it. So the interview is a formal schema that's unfamiliar to them. So they interpret it in their own way, which is you ask me something and you're in authority. Hmm, what's the best way I can answer that? Let's see. Uh, you know, okay. So many people, I'm giving you one example. Um, actually, it's from something I'm working on right now, which I meant to mention before and I didn't, um, is uh, that some indigenous groups will not mention their indigenous language, even if it's their primary language. Wow. Because they have been oppressed. Yes. And they believe that if they admit that they're indigenous, if they can get away with it, which is another story, uh, they purport to speak the colonial you know, language in their country, even if they're very weak in that language. And that sets off a whole lot of misconceptions. Um, this is the kind of thing that, that happens. So we advocate, Andrea DiCapua, my co-author, you know, we're joined at the hip or whatever, the finger or whatever, you know, we're joined. Anyway, uh, we, um, and I, I really have to give a nod to her here because this was in the original edition. This is the book, by the way. All right. Um, and uh, this was the original book had this chapter. So this was not my writing per, per se. Um, I contributed a lot to the second edition, but uh, but this was in the first edition. And, uh, and um, I simply uh, heightened the argument for it. But the idea is to have a conversation and to get to know them. And this is another piece of our intercultural communication framework. Besides identifying priorities from the different perspectives, you have to have an ongoing two-way relationship. It can't be one way. I ask you questions, you answer me. I ask you questions, no. It has to be a relationship, ongoing and two-way. And so that's what a conversation is. And if you really have a conversation, you'll be surprised what comes out. You'll be surprised what information you get if your focus is on the relationship and not the information. And actually that comes from Deborah Tannen. Deborah Tannen, who wrote in sociolinguistics for the lay audience, as well as the academic audience, uh, she makes the point very, very clearly that uh, there's a difference of communi in, communi in communication on, and she puts it, you know, male, female, and all kinds of other things, but we're not, we're not talking about that. But but information versus relationships. Yes, yes. And that's a huge difference. Okay. And if we spend that long on every question, we'll be here for three hours. So <laughs> you have to, okay, thank you. No, it's not a problem. I. So it, this goes back to your, really your first story about the student who just said, now that I know you, I can learn from you. So instead of having interviews, let's have conversations with SLIFE students. and because it removes that authority and it goes back to what they're familiar with. It goes back to their sense of community and the collectivism. So thank you for recommending that. So in chapter two, uh, let's talk about how can we talk about educating the whole child and what you mean by framing the conversation from a deficit to dissonance view. I've never heard of that okay. dissonance view. Yes, so, uh, so there are buzzwords, right? We know what buzzwords are. So everybody says the deficit view, don't have a deficit view. But what does that really mean? I mean, it's very easy to say it. You know, it's the difference between talking the talk and walking the walk. Yes. So I'm gonna try and, and help here, all right? So 
I'd like you to imagine, and this is not a PowerPoint, but I have a PowerPoint, uh, a continuum. So you have a continuum and there are two ends, all right? So let's imagine, and I'm gonna start, this is another principle of my intercultural communication framework, which is you, you go from familiar to unfamiliar and you yes. make bridges. Yes. So let's start with what's familiar. On the formal education end, we have uh, literacy as central. We have formal education, the way we teach it with cohorts by age, by subject areas, all of that. And we have individual accountability. Uh, you have When you take a test or when you answer a question, at some point it's expected you function as an individual. So those are three conditions uh, and processes and activities that we expect, three hallmarks, I call them. They're hallmarks of formal education. They're on the far end, okay? My, my hands, you know, all the way to the end. But anyway, it's a continuum, however long or short you wanna make it. At the other end, and I'm gonna use the Hmong as the example because that was how I first learned about it, was when I was working in, uh, in Wisconsin in Green Bay with Hmong refugees and my teachers were Hmong. In other words, I learned all of this. I could not stand here, sit <laughs> here and talk to you without Andrew Gaoshong. And I wanna give a shout out to An Andy, uh, different from Andrea, I have got, I've got two Andys in my life. Uh, Andrew Gaoshong taught me more about SLIFE without knowing it. He taught me about Hmong culture, Hmong people, Hmong language. From Lao. Uh, a remarkable person. And I would suggest him for a podcast okay. because he is one of the most beautifully bicultural, bilingual, by everything uh, people you could talk with and very insightful. Uh, I can't say enough about him. He, he just finally earned his doctorate. I've been pushing him along and uh, he's, uh, he, he's fantastic. But uh, I owe it all to him because without him, I could not have put this together. As I said at the very beginning of our conversation, you have to get outside of your own worldview and he's the one that helped me do it. So having said that, what we have here is the other end of the continuum. And so what does that look like? It looks like orality, not literacy, oral transmission. It looks like informal learning, not formal. We mentioned earlier that when you learn, you learn from people you know, from people you have relationships with, and you learn at the time that you need to contribute to what it is in their society and community that you can help with. You know, we have a picture in one of our presentations of a little girl weaving. She's weaving not to take three years of weaving classes so that she can open up a shop and sell her goods. She's weaving so that her baby sister can be swaddled. You know, I mean, this is the way informal learning works. And the third area is collectivism, which is very difficult for people to understand who don't come from collectivistic cultures which is that uh, the United States and not for anything, but Western Europe and certain other areas of the world are very individualistic and they don't even know it, but they are. And a majority, and not to get too in the weeds, but Triandis, Hofstede, some of these researchers talk about 
uh, collectivism and individualism, and there are many, many, many characteristics. It's way too much for us to even get into, and it isn't something that that I would necessarily lecture on. But I, but I do know the, the basics of it, and the idea is that group is primary, and that is the case for seventy percent, seven zero, seventy percent of the world's cultures are more on the collectivistic end. But this Western style, so-called Western style, formal educational paradigm. Uh, is individualistic. And so this is a huge difference. So my view is instead of looking at these students as failed versions of this end of the, whichever direction, <laughs> this end of the continuum, look at them as coming towards us from a different end of the continuum. So that's why I call it cultural dissonance, not, not an, an, a deficit. And that's why I, when I look at an achievement gap, I don't like to call it an achievement gap I think that we need to reframe the conversation. You know, the whole thing is who, 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 who handles the terminology of a conversation, right? And we allow the conversation to be taken away from us and to be called an achievement gap. And I say, that's not the conversation we should be having. We should be reframing the conversation into a cultural dissonance conversation. And if we view it that way, then we come up with the idea that if we address the cultural dissonance, the achievement so-called gap will dissipate. It's not going to go away completely, but it will dissipate if we look at the cultural dissonance. We're not looking at that. We're just looking at scores. How can we bring the scores up? And the only way we know are ways within our worldview, and that won't help. So my whole thing, which I guess is going to be some of your subsequent questions, so I'll, I'll hold it there, is what do we do about this issue? But I framed the issue for you. So this is probably my hundredth podcast that I've recorded and no one has really talked about it with such clarity. You're really talking about, yes, we talk about the deficit, but you're really reframing it. You're really saying, wait, it's not really about a deficit. It's not really about achievement. It's talking about two different cultures coming together. And because they're two different cultures, they're speaking two different languages. Right. And they're interacting yeah. in two different ways. They're they're anchored. Their interactions are anchored on their culture. And because of that, the way the schools work with uh, students and the way the students are interacting with the schools, they're speaking two different languages. And this causes a mis miscommunication in culture and not just not just language, but in culture. So so this this brings us then to the next chapter you talk about, then how do we we have to get slide to the world of print? But how do we do that if they're, if that's not where they're coming from? Yes. And again, I, I do need to say that you always stand on the shoulders of giants. And I have to say that um, my, literacy is not my primary area of research. And so a lot of what I am saying here is the work of others and also my own experiences and observations. And... Um, what I have noticed is that drawing on what I said before about personal, the idea is you don't give disembodied worksheets and teach phonics. What you do is, what you do is you start with people they know and experiences they've had and show them what that looks like. And they already know it. So it helps map onto the written version of it. 
So if they know their name, you show them their name. If they know their sister's name, you show them their sister's name. And in fact, I, and, and pictures. So you start with photos of people they know and their name underneath. This is the picture. This is the name. And they already know the name. They can say the name. So even if those particular sounds are unfamiliar in terms of mapping them on the language, they're so motivated and it's so meaningful. And then you build from there. Whereas in most print programs, it's the publisher that drives it. And it always comes down to commercialism. And I, I do want the publishers to survive. I'm not out here to strip them of their income or whatever, but I really feel like with Slife, you've got to build it from the ground up. And in fact, I'm mentoring, I do a lot of mentoring and training, just saying. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm mentoring a, a teacher now who has learned about MALP and is excited about it. And I'm working with her one-on-one -on -one, and she's coming up with fantastic, she'd be another one to talk to, Leslie Garcia. Leslie Garcia is one of those um, 40, 40 women under 40. You know what I mean? She's, uh, she's going to be a star. She's on her way up. Uh, she's delightful. She's from Guatemala, but she came here very young. And she's another bilingual, bicultural who sees the worldviews. And I'm working with her. She teaches uh, in Waltham. Uh, she's, her background is social work and uh, she's just getting into teaching. And we're working on how she can implement MALP. And she came up with a names project. And so she's working on names. And the whole project, it's a, it's a project using the model, the uh, approach I'm going to talk about in a minute. Uh, and she, she works with them on recognizing their names. How many syllables in their name? What is a syllable? What is a sound? What is a vowel? What is a consonant? She's teaching them print through names. And they're learning each other's names. It is a wonderful project and it has multi levels. I don't want to go too much into it, but you can ask her about it. Uh, in any case, uh, the world of print has to be meaningful. It has to be something that they can connect with. Again, people that they know. The other thing I should mention is translanguaging, which is really big today. And the fact that all languages are welcome and any language they speak is easier for them to learn to write, but I'm, I'm not the only source for that information. The entire field knows that. You don't need me to tell you that, that the, the best language to learn to read for the first time is your strongest language. <laughs> and not for anything, but most languages have shallow orthography compared to English. I mean, obviously English is the one that I'm interested in teaching and English has deep orthography if you're familiar with those terms, but the idea of the deep orthography is that there's not a one-to-one -one match between the oral and the written. Whereas in many languages, it's WYSIWYG, which is what you see is what you get. You never know what you're gonna learn in a podcast, right? It's WYSIWYG. So uh, I, I think if, you're, if, you're, if your preferred language is WYSIWYG, use that one for print. All right, that's enough on print. <laughs> Well, really, the, the principle you're really talking about is starting with what students know and what the students are familiar with, and then showing them and then inviting them. To, let's connect the world of print to the world of oracy, that's which you already know. Right? 
You've actually mentioned several times about MAP, which is your program that you have created after 30 years of extensive research. And uh, you recommend it for SLIFE. And so that's why you're an expert. Would you talk about it? Yes. Uh, first, I'd like to refer to the acronym. So there's a, a little speed bump, a little thing about the acronym. And I know that in the beginning, uh, when you perhaps introduced me or you were first starting the podcast, you mentioned SIFE. Yes. And there is a term SIFE. Now, I should say, just to make it clear, my original work existed before the term existed. <laughs> and I did this work so long ago. In fact, one time I, I was, this is an aside, I, I was trying to get onto a, a, a conference program and they said, Helene Marshall did this work back in the 90s. What's new here? <laughs> and uh, when I did my work, I called it oral cultures. I said, this approach is for students from oral cultures. Because I had worked with the, the uh, with Andy Gaoshong and he was from an oral culture and it was the Hmong and I was not aware of all the other oral cultures. I knew about indigenous groups and things like that, but uh, there was no acronym at that time. Right, right. And, uh, Eventually, I realized this was a bigger thing, and then other people came up with an acronym for it. And the first acronym was SIFE, Students with Interrupted Formal Education. But my co-author at the time was writing a book back in 2009 with William Smathers and uh, Frank Lixing Tang. They were all at NYU, New York University. And they wanted to put in the word limited, slife. And so for a while, slife, 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 slife. Limited does not suggest deficit, which is unfortunate because people think of limited English proficient and that's not what this is. We're not talking about the student being limited in any way. We're talking about their exposure being limited. And why is their exposure limited? Fewer re resources, untrained teachers, um, lack of access, uh, you know, trauma in their country, violence in their country. For whatever reason, they, they did not have full-blown education, all right? So limited is important because interrupted simply means interrupted. Uh, so now I, I'm happy to say that SLIFE is the predominant term that's used. Uh, and uh, so we use SLIFE. And in fact, um, the new book uses SLIFE in the title. And we talked to our editor and we said, can we really use the acronym? And we were told, yes, it's widely used, use the acronym. You don't even have to spell it full out anymore. So SLIFE, you heard it here, okay. All right, so uh, so that's uh, that's the history there. Uh, just so we're we're clear, and there's still SIFE is used in New York specifically and in some other areas, but in general, it's it's SIFE. All right, so now um, we're talking about um, MALP, which is a mutually adaptive learning paradigm. That's the question here. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. 
Uh, so you remember the continuum. So the idea of, of MALP is that we're going to have each side contribute something and we're going to have a third paradigm. If you can think of the term paradigm, which is a cluster of principles that come together. And in this case, it's a paradigm for learning. So if we have pieces from the formal education paradigm and the informal paradigm, and we bring them together, there's a new paradigm. And so we call it a mutually adaptive learning paradigm. But it isn't as simple as just boom, bring them together. It has to be selective. It has to be what we're going to keep from each side. Mm -hmm. And um, if you think in terms of being culturally responsive, there's a lot of literature now about culturally responsive teaching and talk about buzzwords. We mentioned buzz. You know, there's a reason that something's a buzzword. There's, like you say, there's a kernel of truth in every falsehood. You know, I mean, there, there's a reason it's a buzzword. You do need to be culturally responsive, okay? In addition to that, which is Gloria Ladson Buildings and Geneva Gay, I nod to both of them. Our work is, is um, much more aligned with Geneva Gay, whom I've met and talked to about her choice of the word responsive. Um, funny story about that. I asked her at a little fireside chat once, I said, why did you choose responsive? We've heard, we've heard relevant, we've heard other different terms. Why, why responsive? And she said she, she spent all night one night looking through a thesaurus and she said, I need the right word. I need the right word. And she said, if you've ever met her, she's very animated. And she said, she said, I knew there was a word. I knew there was a word. And then I saw responsive. I said, yes, because before you can respond, you need to listen. Yes. And she said, it starts with listening yes. and learning. And then you respond. And that resonated with me. And so uh, Geneva Gay's work really informs our work. The other piece is sustaining, and that's Paris and Alim's work. And that's more recent. And um, uh, if, you, if you read their work, they're not talking about SLIFE at all. They're talking about very different population. But I believe that we can borrow the idea of sustaining yes. and talk about sustaining the educational paradigm of SLIFE along with responding. So this is a responsive uh, and sustaining educational model. And that's what mutual adaptation looks like. And there's a metaphor for that, which is, and this I got from Pamela Broussard. I'm, I'm shameless, I borrow from people. You know Pamela Broussard? Ha, okay. So she's, she's a funny lady, actually, <laughs> I like her. Anyway, I was just watching her in preparation for a chapter I'm writing. I have to say we're, we're revising. This is the other book, a second book. Uh, we're revising this book because it's 10 years old. I'm not telling people not to buy it, but you might want to wait till next year. We're revising it, uh, breaking new ground because we really are breaking new ground with mouth. And, um, I was uh, I was interested in putting this into our book. I still have to talk with her about it. But she has she loves gardening, and she has a wonderful metaphor, which is that when you're repotting a plant, yes. if you don't keep the original soil of the plant, the plant will be so uprooted 
it will wilt and it will die. And so similarly, not that people are plants, but it is a living thing. And we need to keep the original soil when we bring students into our classroom. Otherwise, it will not work for them and it will not be effective. And so we need pieces of that original soil in order to help them grow. And that brings me to my mantra, which is my work, creating fertile spaces. Our job as teachers is not to cover curriculum, deliver instruction, meet standards. Our job, our overarching goal is to create fertile spaces for learning. Because if we do that, the curriculum, the instruction and the standards will fall into place. But without those fertile spaces that we must create as teachers, that will not happen. And so with MALP, that's what we're doing. We're creating something new. We're creating these fertile spaces. And I use create knowingly as the top of bloom. So teachers should be at the top of bloom. We're trying to get students to be at the top of bloom. We're teachers, why can't we be creating? We're always following, we're always complying. We need to get higher ground here. We're creators. Now, people say I need my paycheck and I say, okay, don't create till you have tenure, but that's okay. <laughs> anyway, we have to create. And then the spaces we create, the spaces can be wherever. And this is where my other hat, you see behind me this way, I have SOFLA. My other hat is, that's another conversation, but synchronous online flipped learning approach. And so you can have spaces that are in cyberspace. You can have spaces that are psychological and emotional spaces. You can have spaces that are cognitive spaces. You can have spaces that are resource areas in your classroom. So wherever you wanna create any kind of space, all of that is available to you. But the key of the whole thing is not the creating or the spaces, it's what makes them fertile. And so that's where MELP comes in. We have to make it fertile. We have to take that original soil. And so what I'm gonna talk about now is how MELP does that. So we finally get to answering your actual question. You see, I'm very big on framing and my students can tell you, I'm 50 minutes of theory for 10 minutes of practice. I'm forest and here's a couple trees. Okay, so I think that the most powerful um, theory is one that's practical. And so I give you all the theory, but it is practical. So I'm gonna now show you how it works. So you remember Ty, my student who came to see me. So the first element of MALP is interconnectedness. We have to accept that that's a condition. If life don't feel interconnected, they can't learn. Whereas our focus is independence. We wanna scaffold students so that they become independent. And that sounds great, right? Sounds great, be independent, but that's not their goal. They don't wanna be independent. They wanna be interdependent. They wanna be connected. So we have to focus on that. Eventually, we will get them to where they need to be but that should not be our focus. Right. So interconnectedness, number one, in mutually adaptive learning paradigm. Number two, immediate relevance. And everyone says, oh, I always make my teaching relevant. Yeah, but relevant to their lives. 
So it's really important that you find some element of your teaching, whatever your lesson, whatever your project, that they can immediately grab onto. Otherwise, they get disengaged. School, there's school and there's life. They have no connection. But remember, these are people who learn to weave so they can swaddle their little sister. So this is immediate relevance. And it can be something very minor. I mean, it can be, I had a, a science teacher who I trained and she was teaching, uh, now I'm going in an area, I'm not that strong, but something about the, you know, DNA and genetics and weaving. There was some picture of weaving things and whatever she was doing. And she was trying to get, you know, your eye genes and why your eye is a certain color or something like that. Anyway, um, and what, what she did was after mouth training, she had them bring in pictures of their family that didn't have them in it. Oh. So a picture of their family without themselves. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are people who didn't have pictures because of uh, being separated from their family. They were adopted students. So I, I realize all that. We're not in the weeds today. This is just a quick podcast. But, I, I, but in any case, the, the idea stands of what she was trying to do. And what the students had to do was they had to guess whose picture went with what student. Oh, fun. And sure, it was fun and all, but, but it, it immediately engaged them in something that was immediately relevant. And the whole unit followed from that. And she was able to get them interested in something very abstract, you know, this is a difficult topic that you have to study, you know, how many generations and which side of the family, all this. But she used that activity and she said she'd never taught it that way before. I'm, I've been emotional. She had never taught it that way before. And this time she said they really connected with that unit. And that's what mouth can do. So that's immediate relevance. All right, so those are the two conditions for learning. I call them conditions for learning. Now we move to processes. The processes for learning. So one process for learning is oral transmission. This one is fairly straightforward. And it simply says that when you're moving to print, you need to scaffold it with oral transmission. So whatever you teach, make that connection of the oral and the written. Don't only present something in print. And it goes, it goes to not only the four skills. You know, people say, oh, yeah, the four skills, listening, speaking, reading, and writing. We all studied that in our methods class. It's not exactly that. Because oral transmission is not simply saying something orally. It's building in redundancy, repetition, memorable phrases. Yeah. Oral transmission is like Homer. It's like the Bible. It's something that was meant to be delivered orally. It's a narrative. And these students can retain, they can remember, they connect orally in ways that we don't. They can recite long passages that they may have learned from an elder in their village about rituals that go on in their culture. And they have a way to embed something in a, in a storytelling way, um, in a codified way. And, and this I learned from, from Andy Shong. Uh, this was new for me. I 
you know, I, I had to learn this. And um, Walter Ong, whom you should read if you haven't, Walter Ong, O-N-G, uh, Literacy and Orality, uh, Technology and the Written Word, or if that's the exact title, I'm not sure, but his work really informs what orality is all about. And so it's not just listening, speaking, reading, and writing. You need to understand oral transmission. And when you teach, you need to build in to your oral work that kind of oral transmission that will scaffold the written word. And so that is a, an important piece. But in MALP, we combine. We combine the oral and the written together because they do need to come to our side of the paradigm. So print and literacy is important but it has to go hand in hand with oral. The second process is shared responsibility and individual accountability. Now we know that students must be individually accountable. So you can't just have them share all the time. But what's interesting about this is we call sharing cheating sometimes. Other times we don't. So this isn't cheating, but this is. What, what? Okay. So what happens is that it's cheating when it matters the most. Yes. Think about that. It's cheating when it matters the most. So from, again, get out of your worldview. From the perspective of SLIFE, when there are high stakes, I can't get help. When there are low stakes, I can. That makes no sense. Of course, it makes sense to us, but it doesn't make sense to them. So in MALP, we say, okay, we're going to practice. Here you're sharing, here you're individual. And you do it for low stakes. And you show them how sometimes it's, sometimes we share, sometimes we don't. And you get them comfortable with individual accountability gradually over time so they can go back and forth. Share, individual, share, individual. So it isn't just take the rug out and suddenly when it's high stakes, oh, you shared yesterday, but today it's a test. Eyes on your own paper, don't help. But my best friend knows the answer to number eight and I know the answer to number two. We can switch and then we'll both get an A. No, okay, uh, again, worldview. And people say, oh, they're just trying to get over. There are students like that, but not slight. There are students like that, and I've had them, and I won't talk about who they are, but I've had students like that who I know, they're just trying to get over. But that's not what we're talking about today. This conversation is about slide. And we have to remember that. All students aren't the same. These are not cheaters. That's not who they are. And they get labeled that way, unfortunately, because their affect, they, they can't convey to you that that's not what they're doing. They're not cheating. We consider it cheating, but that's not what they consider it. And that's very, very difficult to get. And I hope I've made the point. Right. The third area of the paradigm, the mutually adaptive paradigm is the hardest of all for teachers to understand. If you think that the first two were hard, get ready for number three. And I'm going to pause there for just a minute to see how you've taken the first two parts of the paradigm. I'm thinking about my Asian background. I'm thinking about my Vietnamese background. And you're right. When there's something that's difficult, the Vietnamese people rush together to help each other. The Lao people rush together. When there's a funeral, 
everyone goes to the person's house. They don't wait for the funeral day. When there's a passing, they all rush. They bring food. They help move furniture. They help make space. It's all about the community. When you really talked about the process of saying, okay, let's, let's do this together when it counts, you were speaking right away to the Lao, Thai, Cambodian, Vietnamese culture. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what we do. We help the most when it counts the most. So you're really talking about a different framework. Exactly. And you've just taught me something that I did not know. So thank you for sharing that. You know, you never know. It's everything is two-way. We're having a two-way communication here. So that's very interesting. I might want to use that in one of my books. <laughs> go ahead. Not a problem. All right. So the third process. So let's, yes. Let's go to the third, um, the third uh, piece here. So... This is the activities for learning. And this is where we have to look at what formal education really consists of. So remember the continuum. So on one end, we have informal, informal learning and informal education, informal ways of learning and formal education. What does it consist of? We haven't talked about that. So what is it that makes formal education so difficult for SLIFE? Formal education, boiling it down, consists of two things. Consists of academic ways of thinking yes. and decontextualized tasks. Those are the two, if we really want to look at it. And those two areas are taught in early childhood. You know, there was a, an expression, I think it might even have been a book, Everything you need to know you'll learn in kindergarten. <laughs> when you're very young, you play, uh, play a little game. They had uh, Sesame Street on television in the US years ago. Which of these is not like the others? I can't sing, my husband will tell you that. Which of these doesn't belong? One of these is not like the others as we finish this song or something like that. Anyway, so you have three objects go together and the other one doesn't. Children learn that very early. Well, um, Luria, uh, a researcher in the former Soviet Union, uh, Luria, L-U-R-I-A, did research and uh, with the non-literate, non non-educated folks out there, many, many informants. And he showed them four objects, uh, a, a hammer, a saw, a hatchet, and a log. And he showed them these four objects. And he said, uh, how, would you, how would you throw one of these away if you had to get rid of one? Um, you know, three of them are going to stay and one of them you're going to get rid of. None of them ever got rid of what we know if you want to get an A on a standardized test. You want to get an A on a standardized test, you're going to throw away the log because the other three are tools. You'll see right away the category of tools. This is a categorization task. And people who take standardized tests in formal education know that. They know they have to get rid of the log because it's not a tool the others are. But Slife don't look at it that way. Why would you ever, ever get rid of the log in the real world. 
And so the key here is they are thinking about what can I do in the real world? Like the little girl weaving, what can I do? Well, if I have a log and some tools, I can build something, right? I can whittle, I can, I can divide something in half, I can, I can do something. I'm not gonna get rid of the log, let me see what I can do. They'll fail. So this is what's going on and that's why I don't call it an achievement gap because they're not thinking academically which is categorization. And that's the academic way of thinking. The decontextualized task is ABCD. It's a multiple choice question. So they're saying, wait a minute, you're trying to confuse me. You're giving me which one to throw away? Just tell me, I'll memorize it. You tell me. You say, okay, these three are, lo- these three are tools. I'll learn that. Okay, tools, three are tools. I can learn that, I can remember that. Why are you quizzing me and testing me in this funny way where you have A, B, C, D, or, you know, sometimes it's A, B, C, D, or all of the above, or none of the above. Whose bright idea was that? So, you know, you, you're trying to trick people. Same with true, false. I have a whole presentation in our, in our books we talk about, it, in our workshops we talk about it. And it's not that you don't use these things with slide, but you have to teach it explicitly and not just teach it. We were just talking yesterday, I had a research day, and we were saying that there are people who say, well, teach them true, false, teach them multiple choice. No, it's not that they can't learn the mechanics of it. It's that they don't buy into the validity of it. There's no face validity for them. You know, there's different kinds of validity construct validity, content validity, face validity, you know, that's a whole area of research. So what kind of validity is there? Well, if you don't have face validity, it's a non-starter. So that's what falls apart here. So I just gave you an example of an academic way of thinking and a decontextualized task. That's the curriculum of MALP and MALP projects. So you need to teach those, but, and here's the kicker, as they say, when you teach academic ways of thinking and decontextualized tasks, you must do so with familiar language and content. You cannot at the same time overload the student with academic language that they're just beginning to learn and brand new academic subject matter that they're just beginning to learn. And the reason for that is schema theory. And remember when I said the most practical thing in the world is a great theory? One of my favorite theories is schema theory. Doesn't get enough conversation in the academic world today. It was big years ago. I wanna bring it back because there are three schemata, the language, the content, and the third one, which I think is neglected, which is formal schemata. Mm -hmm. Formal schemata is the academic ways of thinking and the decontextualized tasks. So if that's what's new, let's have the language and the content be not so new. So what does that mean? And people say, oh, well, I'll never get through the, I'll never get through the curriculum. I'll never get them to learn the language. That's not true. You have to balance schemata. When one is new, make the other ones familiar. There'll be a time when you can work more on the content and more on the language, but for SLIFE, you need to front load the activities for learning because if they can't think academically and they can't do decontextualized tasks, 
How are they going to pass standardized tests? How are they going to move to the next level? How are they going to be considered good students? It's a starting point. They need that. The other students don't need that. They came with education in their country, or if they were born here, they took early childhood. They went to school, kindergarten, first, second, third, done, all done. They've got it. It's in place. That's why SLIFE starts at age nine. Because if they come younger than age nine, they're not SLIFE because we have time to give them what they need. But if they come at that age where you make the transition, learning to read, reading to learn, that's the big shift is fourth grade. So if they come younger than that, we can work with them. It's still a speed bump, but we can work with them. But older than that, they're already in a situation where they need this formal schemata of, they need these, these, uh, these schemata of academic ways of thinking, decontextualized tasks. So that's the important piece here. The familiar language and content. So what is familiar language and content? Well, it could be any language they already know which is all of their repertoire, so translanguaging. It can be English that they've mastered, that they already know. If you're their teacher, you know what they already know, right? right. Okay, for content, it could be their funds of knowledge, which is Maul and all of his work and everyone else's work on funds of knowledge. It can be any of their sociocultural experiences from their community, which is essentially funds of knowledge, just repackaged. And then the other thing could be um, subject matter that they've learned already in your class. Take something that they've already learned and let's say now let's look at it through the lens of a decontextualized task or uh, academic ways of thinking. So you don't obviously use this terminology with your students, but, but I'm trying to express it to, to teachers to help them understand that, that this is a new area. That's why I call the book uh, the MALP book, uh, Breaking New Ground. So MALP, pronounced MALP, is the Mutually Adaptive Learning Paradigm. And now you have it. And now I have, this is gonna be like one of those like light bulb career shifting moments for me. I remember when you said, before, you said you your work is on the shoulders of giants. Right? And so I stand on the shoulders of Jana Echeverria, Debbie Short, and Mary Ellen Vogt, and they shared PSYOP. And now I feel like I have another paradigm of learning. So it's MALP. And so now I stand on your big, tall shoulders. I'm so, and this is gonna be like one of those moments where I'm like, oh, I had a, like a career shift just in this conversation today. Because I know that you're talking about SLIFE kids, but really this can, can work with just multilinguals who are, who are not SLIFE kids. When you said that, that made me so happy because what I really want to say, and I'm going to be talking about this uh, next spring at TESOL, uh, I'm, I'm an invited speaker for the TESOL convention next spring. And what I wanna say is you have the continuum and sure the SLIFE are at one end, but there's so many students who are not on either end, they're in the middle. And what I find is that they're not necessarily reaching their potential. And teachers will say, well, they're doing okay. I don't have to worry about them. But what's okay? 
And how do we know how they could really do if we used a culturally responsive, sustaining approach with them, if we used mouth? And so what I'm suggesting is that just exactly what you said, thank you, is that if we used MALP with the students in the middle, let's try that and see how that works. And remember fertile, creating fertile spaces. If we make those spaces for the students in the middle of the continuum fertile by using the MALP approach, they perhaps will bloom and grow and move along on the continuum and they may be stars too. You just tapped in. When you said that, I thought about Sir Ken Robinson's quote, and he said, uh, farmers cannot make plants grow. They can only create the conditions for growth. And I really think that MALP is just that, really creating the conditions for all students to grow based upon what they know and their language, which you already talked about sustaining, uh, culturally sustaining pedagogy from Dr. Django Paris. Uh, I know that uh, there was another question that you mentioned you might want to ask me. Yes, what was that question about? You talked about uh, strategies, specific yes. strategies. Yes, I, okay, yes, I did wanted to please talk about the strategies if you have time. So the reason I wanna talk about the strategies is that a lot of this uh, discussion has focused on my work and I think it's very, very important to highlight the work of other people yes. that have informed me and that I have learned from. And so in our book, we have many strategies that other people have presented before in other books, but there are two that I think are not so well known. And yet the people who created them are amazing educators. They don't necessarily publish a lot. And I would like to highlight their strategies. And one of them is Jill Watson, Jill Watson. And uh, she is um, a professor who has developed work with oral cultures similar to what I have done, but she has gone beyond in terms of her strategies. And you can, if you want talk with her, she's another person to might want to talk with. And her strategy is called RISA, R-I-S-A. And RISA stands for Routine Integrated Structured Academic. It's four adjectives, which is an unusual way to do it, but that's the way she does it. She's unusual. <laughs> so Riza, routine, integrated, structured academic. And it's perfect for Slythe because it taps into their oral transmission. And what she does is she recommends that you build it in about three times a week. And that's the routine. It's, it's a strategy that is integrated so it matches with the content objectives that students are learning. It's structured because it's a template or a conversation, which is the formal schema, which is familiar to them, formal schema. 
and it's academic because it taps into the academic language objectives. So this complements MALP in that what she's teaching them is not a new formal schema because it's their familiar formal schema. What she's doing is using their familiar formal schema to build their academic language and academic content. And it's a conversation, a dialogue. And so they actually talk together about the academic content using the academic language, but in a familiar formal schema. It's brilliant. And I think that's an important strategy that I wanted to share. Jill Watson, RISA, Routine, Integrated, Structured, Academic. Right. So it's, it seems like it's like a structured conversations, structured academic conversations. Yes. And she can talk about it um, much more eloquently than I did, but I just wanted to present it to you because I know you were looking for specific strategies and teachers want specific strategies. And I thought that would complement MELP. The second strategy is from another colleague, Khalid Fethi. Uh, and Khalid Fethi, another person you might want to talk to, runs a language school in Burkhan, Morocco, which is, by the way, just as a side comment, the Clementine capital of the world. They have a big Clementine. I've been there. I stayed at his house, actually. Uh, they have a big Clementine in their central square. So it's SHAC. That's another acronym, SHAC. Sounds funny, right? But it's share. These are verbs. Share, help, ask, comment. SHAC. And this is a phenomenal protocol because what it does is it structures for students how to participate in discussion, how to give peer feedback. And for students who tend to be quiet and they don't know what to say, it gives them four options of what to say. Oh, I can share something. Oh, I can help someone. Oh, I can ask a question or, oh, I can give a comment. And comment doesn't mean, and he teaches this, comment doesn't just mean great, wonderful. A comment must be substantive and it must really drill into something specific. So substantive and specific, not just great. Right. And um, what he does is he has his students have something called shack time and they practice shack. It's delightful. And I have, you know, he has videos, he has videos on the internet, he's all over the internet. Uh, but it's, it's really important because one of the concepts I have is that you don't want students to, you don't want to over control students and say, you know, here's something specific, we want you to answer. And yet, you don't want to just say talk, say something. So this is right in the middle, which is where you always want to be with students. You want to give them enough structure so they have confidence, but not so much that they feel boxed in and that they're just answering a closed-ended item. So open, closed, shack is in the middle. It's wonderful. That's my second strategy. Well, these both of these strategies really mirror the, the MALP principle of um, oral language, like like honoring students' oral tradition and saying, yes, you can yes. learn academics and use your oral language tradition as well. Here's how to do it. We'll just make it a little bit structure by meeting you halfway there. Right. Well, this, I, this, <laughs> I think that the judge only got a fraction of who <laughs> you are. 
because you were told not to be emotive, to be just this like uh, very super professional, not communicating your emotions. And I feel like the judge only got to see a part of you because this was such an emotional, but yet moving conversation that I'm a better teacher for. And I know that there are all these teachers listening now. They're like, wow, they're going to run to Amazon. They're going to run to their booksellers. They're going to they're gonna go, Malp, I need Malp, just like I need PSYOP. So what can I, this is, I'm going to leave I'm, the final question. After all these years of research, what do you know for sure when working with SLIFE? That if we open up to them, they will open up to us. Oh, I'm like speechless. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Marshall, for gracing us with your wisdom, but also your heart. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I want to loop back to Dr. Marshall's story about Ty. After meeting with Dr. Marshall, Ty said, now that I know you, I can learn from you. This conversation is helping me see that I have to take into account their culture instead of just teaching the culture of my school. In essence, MALP is not about teaching students to learn the way we teach, but to teach the way they learn best. When we teach the way they learn best, we're creating fertile ground for growth. In the next episode, we'll return to our collaboration series of the podcast with the last member of the Ready, Set, Co-Teach trio with Ashley Blakely. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.